Hey everybody and welcome to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about some major NFL news. We're going to talk about the WNBA's bubble and the WNBA's wobble. And we're going to talk about the NCAA and how they're reacting to COVID along with our best for last. I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. Now, I had originally planned to do this week's episode, specifically when we're talking about NFL news centered around Dak Prescott and other star quarterbacks still not having a deal. And then Patrick Mahomes decided that he wanted to get a half a billion dollars richer. So obviously, we've got to start there with Patrick Mahomes signing the largest contract in American sports history of 10 years extension worth up to $503 million if he hits this incentives. Now, this deal is a very complex deal. In and of itself, it is 113 pages long. Now, this deal is structured very uniquely. For instance, Patrick Mahomes' salary is guaranteed two years out. So at the start of the league year in 2022, his salary for 2024 is already guaranteed. So, for instance, his cap number would already only be $38 million to $42 million in the first five years of the extension. However, if they were to cut him, they would have dead money on their cap for $78 million because they would already have owed him the two years that are already guaranteed. Now, he does have an injury protection in his deal for about $140 million. Now, that's a big chunk of change and basically has his guarantees in it. That's why, in my opinion, this deal is effectively guaranteed for $477 million because at no point is Patrick Mahomes not going to be worth his dead money plus another quarterback. There's no way Patrick Mahomes is going to be just a bad quarterback. Even if he gets injured and tears the ACL one year, he's still guaranteed two years out. So you would just have a stopgap quarterback and either look to trade him entirely if you want to move on or you cut him and risk $78 million of dead cap spread over two years or maybe even one year, depending on how the NFL salary would structure it. So in my opinion, he's locked in for 12 years. Now, his incentives are simple. Every time he wins an AFC championship game, he gets a million and a half dollars. Every time he wins a Super Bowl, that's another million and a half dollars which is how it can be incentivized from $477 million to about $503 million with those incentives involved on the contract based on winning the AFC Championship game and the Super Bowl. Now, I would like to look at this deal from two different perspectives, from Patrick Mahomes' perspective and the Chiefs' perspective. Now, when originally we talked about this deal, I was guessing five years, $250 million which the deal is basically broken up into two five-year deals. There's a five-year, $40 million a year section, which is the first five years of the extension. And then the second half of the extension is basically a five-year, $50 million a year deal. Now, I do not anticipate them playing this deal out for two reasons. And like I said, I'll look at it from both sides. From Patrick Mahomes' side, you've all but guaranteed yourself $477 million over the next 10 years of your career, not including the about $30 million you have left based on your this last year your rookie deal and your fifth year option before the extension even kicks in. So you basically guarantee yourself $500 million in salary for the next 12 seasons. Now, 
that could be a good thing and that could be a bad thing. Patrick Mahomes is worth more to the Chiefs and to the league specifically than what he's getting, especially when the salary cap goes up because the new CBA kicks in with the new TV money in three seasons, which is when the contract extension starts. So the first year the extension starts, after that first year, it's gonna basically look like a bargain because $40 million might be normal for a quarterback. You know, at that point you should have a Baker contract extension. Joe Burrow would be on the cusp of one. Lamar Jackson would already have one. Deshaun Watson would be in his. Dak would be looking for his. Trevor Lawrence might be starting negotiating with his when he comes in the league. So $40 million a year will look like a normal quarterback salary by the time Patrick Mahomes gets there. Also, you look at when the team gets a home playoff game, they make anywhere from 12 to $18 million that home playoff game specifically. So if you win the second seed in the AFC, that's no longer a first round bye. You would play the seventh seed now. So that's $15 million, let's say, if you average it out. So that's $15 million out of Patrick Mahomes' 40. Next, you go to the divisional round. You win that game. That's $15 million out of Patrick Mahomes' 40. So that's $30 million Patrick Mahomes has already made up in his own salary. So now, let's say the one seed loses, you host the AFC Championship game. That's another $15 million. That's $45 million. Patrick Mahomes only makes 40 on average in the first five years of the extension. He's paid for himself and giving you a little bonus. Now, when we, like I said, when we first discussed this contract, I was thinking five years, $250 million, which would be $50 million a year, and it would give Patrick Mahomes the option to get back into free agency in the peak of his prime and renegotiate to get to back to the top of the league. Or I started saying that they might tie it to a percentage of the cap. Now we had this rumor with Russell Wilson in Seattle that didn't come to fruition. And now we've had the rumor with Patrick Holmes. That was a very strong rumor, but the Chiefs vehemently denied even the possibility of it. And that turns out to be the case. Now, if they were to tie that to a percentage of the cap, I think that'd be best for Patrick Mahomes, although good for the Chiefs. Because Mahomes, if he says, okay, I want to be 17.5% of the cap every year regardless. Well, the cap goes up traditionally every year, except for maybe next year with the losses due to COVID. But the cap goes up and up and up, and it doesn't stop. Well, in Patrick Mahomes' case, he gets 15% of the cap or 17.5% of the cap, like in my example. His salary just goes up and up and up. The Chiefs gets to work around a set number because they know we have 82.5% of our cap left. So regardless, we know Patrick's only taking up 17.5, which is a good chunk, but you know for a fact it's 17.5. It's not, oh, it might swell to 20 or it might all of a sudden be 13. We have a little money on the back end. You know for a fact we have 82.5% of our cap to work with. It will keep Patrick Mahomes as the first, second, or third highest paid quarterback. It will make sure he's always getting market value, or at least as close as he can in a salary cap team sport. And it would give the Chiefs a set number. Now, from the Chiefs' perspective, they kind of got a bargain. Like I just said earlier, if he wins three home playoff games in one year, he paid for himself. And then you think about the AFC Championship game, merchandise. You think about the merchandise he'll sell just in general. If they win a Super Bowl, all that merchandise. Season ticket sales, I'm sure, are through the roof and are sold out. He basically is paying for his own salary just from being himself. Now, another thing is, as we said earlier, the CBA is going to jump up the salary cap due to the TV money. 
So he's not going to be making nearly as much as he could based on the current percentage of the cap he would be making because the TV money is going to explode the salary cap. It's an all new TV deal. They say it's considerably more than the last one. You have a lot more streaming services and a lot more possibilities that someone can go to like the NFL. And like Colin Cowherd says all the time, the NFL tells corporations what they're gonna pay. Basically, it's not really much of a negotiation. They go, we're charging you this to have the right to broadcast our games on your television station. And pretty much the TV stations agree because where else you gonna get live professional football? That's the biggest rating nine times out of 10 on everybody's station is a Cowboy game. It's a big time Saints Falcons game. It's a big time divisional game with Ravens and Steelers. That's your top games every year. So those TV companies are going to agree to the NFL's demands because they want to have the right to broadcast those games and to use them in TV packages and commercials and things of that nature when they're advertising for their stations. So having Patrick Mahomes on a deal like that, I wouldn't think about it as, let's say the thing averages out $45 million a year, where Dak Prescott's averaging for 40. An average Pro Bowl player costs you about 10. So really, is Patrick Mahomes, how I would look at it, is Mahomes and a quality NFL starter, which is about $5 million in today's market, five to seven, worth more than Dak Prescott and a Pro Bowl level player? I would say yes. A Pro Bowl level receiver goes for about 12 to $15 million now. A starting receiver goes from about four to seven. That's a little bit more than the gap between what Mahomes is going to average and what Dak wants to average. So therefore, the Chiefs got a deal. Now, I don't think this contract plays all the way out. I do think around 2025, 2026, somewhere before the cap jump explodes and the cap hit goes from about $40 million to get a 50, they sit down at the table and renegotiate it. Now, whether that is to move more of it to bonus to alleviate the cap, guarantee more of it up front to move it to the back end, but there's no way as it sits currently, the deal goes all the way through. Now, it'll be tricky in terms of renegotiation because of Patrick's guarantee mechanisms and the fact that he gets guaranteed a salary two years out. If I'm Patrick and I start slipping off performance, I'm not renegotiating. You would have to renegotiate me so early because I have to two years of guaranteed money already kicked in. What are you going to renegotiate the third year after that? Well, my performance could come back up, so I'm not going to risk losing the money. I'm not renegotiating. But the biggest question became, does this affect Dak Prescott, Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson? Well, Deshaun Watson seems to think so. He uh, was on Twitter and put the smiling baby gif with the little beanie on. He put that picture quoting somebody who put Deshaun Watson, added him on Twitter with the eyes, basically saying like, I see what Patrick got, I want something similar, but he doesn't. All reports have come out and say that Deshaun Watson's looking for like a three-year contract from the Texans, which shows that Deshaun Watson does not trust the Houston Texans organization led by Bill O'Brien on the football side nearly as much as Mahomes trusts the Chiefs organization. I mean, by signing a 12-year contract, in essence, he's trusting that Andy Reid is not going to make it the whole 12 years as the head coach of the Chiefs. 
So he's trusting that organization to hire the next coach to help him win. Because you can get a situation like Freddie Kitchens and just flat out ruin three to four years of Mahomes' prime, and you'll never get those years back. And that'll be he'll be piling up stats, but have no chance at winning. So Deshaun Watson, you know, obviously I said put the Jeff of the baby smiling. And it comes to a situation where he's not looking for the same kind of deal, only wanting three years. Now, he's going to get a very high amount of money in those three years. If he wants three years and the Texans agree to give him three years, it could be similar to Kirk Cousins, three years, $84 million, or I was fully guaranteed. Deshaun Watson may command three years, $125 million, fully guaranteed contract. Or if the Texans get him to sign a four or five year extension, if the salary may go through the roof in order to ensure that he will be giving up his right to free agency for two years in an effort to make a lot of money from the Houston Texans. Now, Dak Prescott, on the other hand, has no ability to get to this bracket. He's actually maybe hurt by what Patrick Mahomes did because Mahomes did two things Dak does not want to do with the Dallas Cowboys. He signed a team-friendly deal in terms of his total cap number stretched out over a long period of time. That is neither thing Dak wants to do. Dak was commanding $40 million a year. He was saying that Mahomes is going to go to 50. You know, him and his agent tie friends were saying that Mahomes is going to go to $50 million a year. So $40 million a year was very reasonable for a quarterback of Dak Prescott's talent, especially being completely free with nothing to hold over him but franchise tags, transition tags, and things of that nature. Well, Mahomes basically signed for $45 million a year. So that automatically decreases the value of what Dak should get based on the market to about $38 million a year, $37 million a year, which conveniently would be the franchise tag for Jerry Jones next season. So Jerry's looking like, well, if I'm supposed to pay you $37, $38, I can have you play for $31 this year. Dak's already signed his franchise tag to guarantee himself $31.4 million this season. Then Jerry Jones can turn around and say, I'll just tag you again next year, pay you 37, which will be your market value, but I can kick your contract can down the road. So if Dak doesn't play well, that could give Jerry Jones say, see, I gave him multiple chances. He didn't come through. We're going to move on. Or it could help Dak Prescott in the long run. He goes, wins a Super Bowl in the next couple of years, and now he can command a Patrick Mahomes-like contract. But in all honesty, I don't think the Mahomes negotiation should seriously affect Dak or Deshaun. Both of those guys combined don't have Patrick Mahomes' resume. I mean, one could reasonably argue that if Frank Clark is three inches backwards, Patrick Mahomes is sitting in two years of starting with two Super Bowl rings, an MVP, a 5,000-yard, 50-touchdown season, and it's on pace to by far become the greatest quarterback in NFL history. Deshaun Watson... Has a playoff win, maybe two. Dak has one. Now, Dak does have a rookie of the year. None of those guys can say that. But in the grand scheme, rookie of the year or an MVP with a Super Bowl MVP, rookie of the year or by far the face of your franchise, some people don't even consider Dak Prescott the best player in his own team. But I think that Dak Prescott will get a contract extension from the Cowboys. He's too vital to what people need now. He's a leader. 
He's a face of a franchise. He's a guy that has 12 national TV commercials. He's marketable. He's what Jerry Jones is looking for in a starting quarterback. He's safe. He's reliable. And I think he's going to get a contract extension. He wants four years. Jerry wants five to stretch out the cap hit. But I'm thinking they'll settle on a four-year extension for about $38 million a year. I think Deshaun Watson may end up going four years as well for about $40 to $42 million a year. Guarantees will be big on both sides because they're going to have to get the other side to agree. So I believe that in order for Jerry to even approach Dak with a five-year deal, the guarantees are going to have to be pretty high. And in order for the Texans to try and get Deshaun to go to four years instead of three years, same thing. Those guarantees are going to have to be absolutely monstrous. Not fully guaranteed, maybe, if they go to a fourth year, but 85 90% of it. So we're talking $130 million, maybe out of 160. So it'll be something that on both sides we may have not seen. They've opened the door to different contract structures in terms of guarantee mechanisms, injury protections, things of that nature. And so it'd be very interesting to watch both of those contracts and what's happening. Now, to quickly touch on the COVID measures the NFL has been releasing, they are not forcing people on the sideline to wear masks. So you're fine there in terms of you're a coach or a player. You don't have to wear a mask on the sideline. However, any other personnel does. So that's training staff, that's um, water people, that's ball boys. If they have them this season, they'll have to wear masks. But one controversial rule that the NFL has implemented, and apparently it was negotiated with the NFLPA, was no jersey swaps or interactions post-game. So, you know, the usual big mass huddle that guys have. Some guys pray at center field, uh, you know, for blessings, getting through the game healthy. Other guys just talk and interact. The jersey swap has become very, very, very popular in the NFL. The NFL has banned those this season. All the players, a lot of the analysts, myself included, kind of went, huh. So we can tackle and hit each other for three and a half, four hours. That's fine. But three minutes after the game, talking and stuff like that could cause issues with spreading. I think that's something that the NFL may take back, especially with a lot of prominent voices like Richard Sherman speaking out against it. They may retract this rule. But all in all, we're getting closer to the NFL season. They're making plans. They're getting stuff together. Teams like the Ravens and the Steelers are releasing ticket plans, cutting capacity to about 14,000, things of that nature. So the football season is getting close. Congratulations to Patrick Mahomes and Lee Steinberg on a great negotiation with the Chiefs. Congrats to the Chiefs. Congrats to the Chiefs fans and the NFL for having their star knowingly locked in one place, presumably for the next 12 years or the rest of his career, however long that lasts. And up next, we're going to move to the WNBA and the NBA and their bubbles. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. I know it was a little long wind on the NFL, but hey, there's a lot of great topics this week. I feel like we had to cover them all. But now we're going to shift to the NBA and the WNBA and the bubble situation for both organizations. So up first, we're going to start with the WNBA and their bubble. Now, they are all centralized at the IMG Academy in Florida. They're basically in dormitories. 
which is not the luxurious suites that the NBA players are getting in Disney, but that is another situation all in of itself. So the WNBA began to release photos when they got there. Now, one of the dormitory buildings had a rundown laundry room. It wasn't great. They had like a, a rodent trap in the corner on a washing machine. They had a worm on a floor of a hotel room. It just wasn't great. And so the WNBA and the IMG Academy were working together to fix the issue. Now the WNBA did do a site visit. The league office did go to IMG, tour some of the facilities they were going to use, get rooms, get showcases, stuff like that for what the players are going to be in because they're playing a 22 game schedule and their playoffs and never leaving IMG. Now that's a situation where they're gonna be there a little longer than the NBA is gonna be in Disney. So I do not expect I don't. I do not expect for the WNBA to get the super, super, super luxuries that the NBA were getting. It's just not cost effective, especially with the NBA owning half the WNBA. It's just not cost effective for them to get the billion dollar treatment that the NBA players are getting. However, they are still grown professional athletes. Having worms on the floor is completely unsanitary and flat out disgusting. The laundry room just wasn't great. Now, several players have said that their rooms are nice. I mean, one of the players walked around showing the villa that she was staying in. She was talking about how luxurious and nice it was. And it seems to be only located in one of the dormitory buildings. However, the W's league office should have seen this. The W league office should have known this was happening. If you did take a facility tour, you should have toured multiple rooms, multiple setups of rooms the laundry room and things of that nature the players were going to use because they're going to be there for months. So are the NBA players if they win three and a half months, but the WNBA are doing their entire season at IMG. There's no way that the WNBA should not have known this, but I'm glad they are getting it fixed as soon as possible. But it also casts dispersions on the league. The only time the W is brought up nationally, nothing bad happens, is when a co-owner of a team says Black Lives Matter is a political movement and that she disagrees with it. It's when accommodations at the hotels aren't great or even up to standard for what someone should want to be in for any period of time, let alone months, let alone being a professional athlete at the top of her game. I think that the W needs to get more on the positive side of the news, push more of their good narratives. But I'm glad that they are rectifying this issue as soon as possible. And it's a great move by the W to fix that, to address them, and to have them solved quickly before the players get too many down to the wobble, as they're naming it, and being prepared to go play. Now, in regards to the NBA's bubble, that was also not perfect. Several of the players talked about their accommodations weren't what they were expecting, what they were told. I know a lot of the players were told they were going to all have giant suites. Now, maybe they're still going to go end up with giant suites, but they're all in self-quarantine right now. Uh, the Mavericks put out a pretty funny video of two of their players becoming DJs and everybody popping out on their individual balcony, dancing to the music together because they're all self-quarantined for 48 hours when they first get to the bubble. That's to make sure if anybody comes straight into the bubble, you go straight into your room, you don't leave your room. Somebody comes in, they test you, and then they leave. 
if you come back negative, you're fine. You can go back into gen pop, as I'm going to call it, even though it's not jail. But you go into the general population, you can go hang out other people because you're negative. Great. You're negative. If you test positive, you stay in your room for two weeks and you can't practice yet. So the Lakers left today. New Orleans left previously. Teams have been staggering their entrances into Orlando to minimize mass contact at first. Several teams come off of their stuff and post quarantine tomorrow. Others a day from now, the Lakers will be two days from now. They'll be able to practice together in Orlando on their specific practice court. But the food started going around on social media where it looked like airplane food. They were in little containers. They were on trays. And several of the players was looking like, uh, what is this? Isaiah Thomas joked that LeBron's not eating that. So I don't know what they're going to do, but LeBron's not eating that. But Mark Stein reported that it was only for the first 48 hours where they weren't going to have the chefs and the barbershops and all the amenities they were promised because they wanted to limit exposure. So the people came, got their foot off the door, knocked, and then left. And they had all disposable things like little cartons, little plastic trays of fruit, the chicken and stuff was in styrofoam plates because it was designed to be all disposable for the first couple of days to make sure everybody was negative in the bubble. And then it's not a party, but it's freedom. Personal chefs, whenever you want, 24 hours. Barbers, six of the best barbers in the country that have experience with athletes are going to be in the bubble having their own barbershops. I mean, this thing is going to be an island of sorts. It's going to be great because they're going to have their own everything. But it was going to be a little rough at the beginning. And so it's going to be great to watch them back. I mean, the NBA is coming back, people. July 30th, we've got Zion in the first game. We've got LeBron versus Kawhi in the second game. And I think they need to steal a little bit from the basketball tournament that's happening in Chicago. That thing looks great. They have a black backdrop where the camera's facing. So there's no weird depth look of seats that just aren't there. There's just a black backdrop. It is provides the perfect depth level. It's the bench and then the backdrop. You don't you're not staring into an empty arena. It is produced great. They have interview stations set up that are six feet apart. Everybody's social distance outside of people physically on the court. Even the announcers are socially distanced. It is perfect. So I think that the NBA needs to steal a couple things from the basketball tournament. I'm glad the WNBA is getting their issues fixed. I can't wait to see the real bubble for the NBA. I'm kind of excited now because the side bubble wasn't bad. I mean, they didn't have quote unquote suites, but I mean, they also weren't in the best hotel either. Uh, the best teams arrived today, like the Lakers and the rest of the crew. So I'd be interested to see their setups. But I mean, they have pretty nice rooms. You had guys having little studios. You had guys bring monitors their video games so they can continue to play their games on monitors and not you know the hotel tv you had guys showing off that they had their alcohol lined up on the counter they had their snacks it was like a two three four month supply of snacks just lined up on the counter they had everything they can need for the next three to four months because you can't leave to go get this thing if you're a lover of oreos and you're out of oreos you're just out of oreos i mean there's no way for you to get them so I'm very excited to see the real bubble, to see some of the amenities. I'm sure the guys will be Snapchatting and posting about the barbershops that's on site and the ponds and the trails and the practice courts and stuff of that nature. So it's going to be very exciting to get the basketball back July 30th with the NBA and getting the W back 
with stars like Candace Parker in her 13th season. You've got great teams like the Seattle Storm fully healthy with Brianna Stewart, Sue Bird, and the rest of the crew all playing. So I can't wait to see both leagues get to work. And up next, we're going to shift to college sports and how they're reacting and dealing with COVID. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. Now, this next segment is going to be talking about the different NCAA situations regarding COVID. It's not positive news. Hardly any of it may be positive, if any at all. Uh, Let's start off with Stanford. They've decided to cancel 11 of their 36 sports due to lack of possible funding. Now, football at a major school funds most of their program, even at a smaller school, funds a lot of their athletic programs and the institution itself. So with the anticipated revenue loss due to the lack of fans or a possible lack of season entirely, from football, Stanford University made the decision to get rid of 11 of their sports. It's not shocking. It is sad, but it's not shocking because of what they could lose financially due to the lack of fans in the stadium. I mean, that's 60, 70,000 people. Every ticket, $100 or more, that's no longer available to you seven, eight games a year. That hurts. It hurts a lot of the smaller sports on campus where Maybe those guys only get into Stanford or be able to afford Stanford because they're on a water polo scholarship or because they're on an athletic scholarship that is offered by the university that's no longer there. The Big Ten has made the decision to only play conference games, which in and of itself does not hurt the Big Ten necessarily, but it hurts a school like Bowling Green, who was scheduled to play Ohio State and Illinois this season, for over $2.2 million. Well, if the Big Ten ultimately sticks to only playing conference games, Bowling Green no longer gets that money. That's a situation where they could cripple the entire institution financially, not getting an expected $2 million into their revenue stream. That may force them to shut their program down for this season, if not longer, and cripple the university in terms of things outside of the athletic department. Now, reports have it that the Pac-12 may be next to make this decision. We have the SEC holding a wait and see along with the ACC. Now, ultimately, schools going conference only, conference only, conference only leads schools like Notre Dame in the win. They don't have a conference. Every school they'll play is out of conference. So if the ACC, the SEC, the Big Ten, the Pac-12 decide we're going to go conference only and we'll figure it out and get to the playoff if there's a playoff, Notre Dame would in turn have four, five games on their schedule. I mean, they play a majority ACC schedule to begin with, and then you toss in their Pac-12 game every year with USC. If all those conferences shut it down, there's nobody left for Notre Dame to play. There's no way they can hurry up and manufacture games with smaller schools. Those schools are going to be looking for a payday to fly to Notre Dame to play them. That could strongly affect their TV contract because then they couldn't fulfill their NBC deal because they wouldn't have anybody to play. It would be a lot of open weeks, a lot of bye weeks for these schools. I mean, look at a school like LSU. They play four non-conference games in the first six weeks of the schedule. Well, if they go conference only, they're not playing the first two or three weeks of the season. Then they play a game, have another week or two off, and then they start a book in season to the back half of the schedule. 
Now, I don't agree with this decision. And it's not comes from a period of safety. It comes from a period of common sense. If you're willing to have kids fly from Baton Rouge and LSU's case to Gainesville, Florida, to play football, stay in the hotels, fly on a private plane, all that stuff, what's the difference between that happening and USC and Alabama flying from their respective cities to meet in Texas? What's the difference of having Ohio State and Oregon play because they're both having to fly anyway? Like the risk of flying from your city to say in a different city to play football and a hotel and to be served with COVID risk doesn't reduce because you're closer. It, it doesn't affect anything. Whether you go a thousand miles or 1500 miles, the risk is still the same. So I disagree with that. I think this could ultimately give the bigger conferences what they were looking for a few years ago. If you remember the Pac-16 and the super conferences, like the big 16 that was going to kill the big 12 because schools like Texas and Oklahoma were going to go play in a quote unquote Pac-16. The SEC were going to take the bigger, smaller schools and join the SEC. The big 10 was going to go to 16 teams and the ACC was going to go to 16 teams. Basically, they were going to play nine games in your conference, maybe 10 games in your conference. You play one power five non-conference school and you play your homecoming game, as I'm going to call it, where you play a FCS school, give them a nice paycheck or a smaller D1 school and have those guys come. Well, if they lock the smaller schools out by Pac-12 only playing Pac-12, SEC only playing SEC, it may hurt the smaller schools to the point where they decide to band up. Well, they go, look, we can make this thing work if we all come together, 16 of us all come together for one super small conference, one mid-level conference. Like the MEAC, for instance, goes to 16 teams or something like that because they need the revenue sharing pot. And the more games they can play in a little region, keep it close, they may end up making more money. And then they jump outside to get a big payday from an Ohio State, from an LSU, from a Clemson, something like that. So then it would allow the bigger conferences to go, okay, boom, go away. We'll just play each other and have our own revenue sharing. So I think this is going to be a domino effect. I don't know how Bowling Green is going to allow $2 million to walk out the door without a fight. Lawyers can get involved. This can get ugly. I don't know how they can lock these smaller schools out without the conferences themselves getting involved and saying, no, you agree to these games. There's no more further risk than you flying from LA to Washington to play than it is from Bowling Green to go to Ohio State to play. There's no further risk involved in any scenario. So I'll be very interested to see how that's going to go. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a dog fight. But ultimately, the NCAA has a big problem on their hands. They have so many separate entities where conferences can have carte blanche to do pretty much what they want. And because there's no true governing head of the NCAA to control everyone at one time, this is going to cause a lot of different rule changes. A lot of different decisions are going to be made. The Big Ten jumped the gun. The SEC, Big 12, Pac-12 were not anticipating that they were going to do this when they spoke on a conference call earlier in the day. So it'll be very interesting to see how that happens. But up next, we're going to have our best for last segment. And that's where we're going to talk about UFC and their fight island. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. 
and in our best for last segment, we're going to talk about Dana White pulling off his Fight Island. Now, the Fight Island looks amazing. I'm talking beautiful sand backdrop. They've got the ocean right there. It looks great. And in his main event, his first main event at Fight Island, he pulls a fight together in less than two weeks. So one of his main fighters gets COVID. And so they can't even have the scheduled main event. He calls up Jorge Masvidal and is like, hey, you want to fight Usman? He's like, heck yeah, I want to fight Usman. It's a title fight. I'm 35 years old. Let's give it a whirl. So he all of a sudden goes from training two to three days a week, like he said, kind of losing his heart for it, as so it appears. So all of a sudden, he's in a title fight in two weeks. So now he has to ramp up his training, ramp up his testing. He's nowhere near fight shape. He was on first take telling the crew he's going to lose 20 pounds in six days to even make weight for the fight. He's got to fly across the world, re-up his training, all for the shot at a title at 35 years old. I mean, he holds the record for the most fights in a career without having a title opportunity. I mean, he's never had a title fight. This is his first one. And he's going to open Fight Island, basically, in their first main event. I mean, this is beyond amazing from Dana White and something that UFC has over boxing. UFC is controlled by one man. Dana White tells you when and where to fight as long as you are under contract with him. Now, Masvidal may not even have been in this opportunity because him and Dana White got in an argument with money. Uh, Masvidal wanted more money. Dana White wouldn't give it to him, so Masvidal set out, basically. And was looking like, hey, man, I'm 35 years old. I've had over 40 fights in my career. Maybe it's time to call it because his training was lowering down. He wasn't ramping as hard. Well, because of the disagreement, he's available when Dana White picks up the phone and calls him. I'm sure Masvidal got a massive guarantee. He got a massive split of the pot. He got a massive split of everything because Masvidal was needed in this situation. I mean, it would have been a disastrous nightmare. If Dana White has to cancel his first main event on Fight Island. Instead, he gets a fight the fans wanted to begin with, but Dana White couldn't give because he said that the guy who tested positive for COVID had earned his title shot, which he did. He got hot, won a few fights in a row, and he deserved his shot at the title. Unfortunately, he got COVID, so Masvidal gets his opportunity at Usman. I mean, trash talk is flying back and forth. It's a testament to UFC and Dana White that they can even pull something like this together. Boxing would have to shut the event down. I mean, there's no way you're going to call up a guy in boxing. Being the independent contractor that he is, maybe he signed to a promotion. But basically, he's an independent contractor. There's no way you're going to call him up two and a half, three weeks outside of a fight and be like, hey, we've got a fight for you for a title in three weeks. Could you be ready? There's no way to happen. I mean, they would fight for a week and a half on even where the fight was going to be located, even though that was already settled. I mean, it would just never happen. So that's a huge credit to Dana White and Masvidal himself to even go in with the fight and Usman for even allowing a substitute fighter. Now, I'm sure he wants his payday. He's been training for one guy who have to switch to a guy like Masvidal, two completely different styles. But I am very interested in seeing this fight, especially on Fight Island. The backdrop looks beautiful. Great job, Dana White, there for having this vision when COVID started. And saying none of the states won't allow me to fight in, that's fine. I'll go do my own thing. And so great job by Dana White. I mean, I am very excited about this. Great job with Fire Island. But that's going to wrap it up for us today, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget to follow the Twitter at JTimeSports for breaking news and updates. 
I mean, we're all over the NBA, the NFL, MLB, and what they got going on. So do not forget to look us up there, follow us, and subscribe to us. Tell your friends, tell your sports rivals, tell anybody you want to educate on sports, and listen to us, man. I appreciate all the support, and I hope you guys have a great day.